this week I was, um, I did a, 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 did an act of kindness for a stranger. It wasn't a huge act, but it was a small act, but it was something that, you know, I had to go out of my way to do. And it wasn't until afterwards that I stopped and thought like, why did I do that? Like, I mean, not that like I'm a mean person, but like what was, you know, I, I felt like I did something that probably, I don't know, some people wouldn't do. Um, and it was, I was right, driving on route nine and the car in front of me at a stoplight, uh, the right rear tire was low. And I mean, low as in like really, really low, like dangerously scary, low tires going to come off at some point if, if the person keeps driving on it. So I, I looked for an opportunity, found a way to sort of get next to the car uh, at the next stoplight and, um, and was able to get the person to roll down their windows. And I told her her tire was really, really low. She needed to pull in somewhere and get it filled immediately. And so she was really grateful. Um, and so I thought about I was driving later and I realized like, man, my mom and dad would have done that. That's why I did that. Um, it was a weird feeling, but uh, I remember, I don't know if your parents ever told you this when you were little, but I remember my parents looking at me and telling me, you know, when, what you do when you're away from us reflects on our family. Now, that was usually to kind of warn me from doing bad things, which I did anyway um, without much thought. But uh, as I got older, I began to think about that more. And I understood that, you know, the, the, for better or for worse, you typically reflect your family, how you live and whether people, um, your, your actions either hold up your family as good or, or can, you know, be, be detrimental, obviously. Um, but what, what Paul is telling us in Ephesians 5 today, what we're looking at, is really this idea that um, who we are as the children of God, that's, that's really what this uh, begins in chapter five, verses one and two, uh, with this idea, we're the children of God. Therefore, what we do is to reflect who we belong to, who's our, who's our father, right? Um, a couple weeks ago, you may uh, remember that we, uh, well, to get people up to speed, if you're new, we're in uh, Ephesians, which is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in the Roman city of Ephesus. They had been there, helped plant that church, pastored that church for a couple of years, and he's writing now about 10 years later back. First half of the book is theology, gospel theology, and, and what we're to believe, and then the second half of the book is really how do we live? What do we do because of that? And that's where we've been the last few weeks, chapters four, chapter five, chapter six, are all about what does it mean to live out the Christian life in uh, this world. And the core of what um, Paul's teaching us, well, last uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the idea that new, new behavior comes from new people. So, so, or to reverse that, new people live in new ways. And what, what the gospel does is doesn't just change our outward behavior. It changes us fundamentally as people. It brings us into God's family. So now, as part of God's family, we function different. We, we live differently because we have a whole new identity in Christ. Um, last week, Tyler began turning, uh, turn the corner into some more, um, specific ethical, um, uh, commands around like anger and lying and work and things like that. So I'd encourage you, uh, to go back. To, it was, uh, Tyler's first message at City on the Hill. So I encourage you to go back and listen. It was wonderful. It was such a, a blessing. I really enjoyed it personally, uh, sitting and listening and learned a lot from, uh, the passage. Um, but what Paul's telling us is biblical morality flows out of a new identity in, crisis, uh, in Christ. Morality is not the basis for a relationship with Christ, but the result of it. Um, chapter 5 begins with a powerful call um, to, to imitate God, then walk, and then a, a call to walk in sexual purity and in humility and holiness. 
Uh, before we read this text, I, I want to, to say this right off the bat. We're going to be talking about sexual purity, uh, Christian sexual ethics some today. And I want to say this right off the bat. That's exactly what it is. It is the Christian sexual ethic for those who are in the family. If you're not a Christian and you're not sure where you stand with Christ, this isn't a command for you. I'm not saying don't listen to it or it doesn't have wisdom there, but, but uh, a person doesn't become a Christian by obeying the biblical sexual ethic. They become a Christian by faith in Jesus. And then only out of that do I believe that the, the Christian sexual ethic begins to make sense. Um, and so I encourage you to just listen today and understand this is a framework for those who are following Christ, who are part of Christ's family, which is why, even though Tyler preached verses 1 and 2 last week, I included them in our text for today. So follow along. Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 14. When I'm done, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond by affirming with me, thanks be to God. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Now, pause on that quickly. That's exactly what I'm saying. That is the basis for every command about how we should live in this world, um, what we should do, what we should not do as followers of Jesus is that you belong to God. If you're a Christian, you have been redeemed by God, brought into his family. And just like as a child who grew up in, under Bill and Eleanor Mason, I learned to live a certain way because of that. You and I, as followers of Jesus being brought into God's family, are meant to live in a different way as well than the world around us. Now, verse 3. But sexual immorality and impurity and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So right off the bat, even though there's moral commands here, this text reminds us that Christianity is not moralism. Moralism uh, teaches is a focus on outward behavioral modification. That's the, the idea, outward behavioral modification. That's moralism. Christianity focuses on an inward change that has implications and impact on the way you live. You get that? So it's not, the, the message today is not go out, try harder. It is that there, it, to press in, live into the identity that you now have been given in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, then the moralism is only an indicator to you to point to you, to your need for Christ, that you 
need grace. You need the gospel. And this is what Paul says back in in chapter 4, verses 22 uh, through 24. I'm not going to put them on screen, but he was talking about how um, we are called, and this is a command, to put off the old self, which is corrupted by evil desires, to have our minds renewed, and to put on the new self, which is being made after the image of Christ. In other words, when a person becomes a Christian, they start a process where God is conforming them, making them, not just externally, but internally, by desires, by thoughts, by, the, by uh, how we spend our time, our energies, and our thoughts um, geared towards God. Out of this call to be imitators of God because he's our father in verses one and two, Paul tells us how we should live when it comes to sexual purity and in humility and light. So two ideas, that is, it matters if we walk in sexual purity as God's people. And secondly, it matters if we walk in humility and light. Just two ideas. Um, Let's look at the first one. It matters if we walk in sexual purity, verses three through eight. Now, if you're not familiar with, with uh, Roman history, you're not familiar with, with what Roman cities were like, there can be an assumption in our minds that, oh, this was a traditional culture um, that was a bastion of sexual purity and wholeness, right? Like this, they, they don't understand the world that we live in today. This text is totally irrelevant because it's not addressing the kind of world we live in. Let me just set that aside for you. Ephesus was a Roman city. It was a cosmopolitan Roman city, and I'm not going to get into all the sexual practices that were accepted in that culture, but assume pretty much everything in ours, plus temple prostitution and something I'm not going to mention that we don't even accept. So um, let's just say that there. This was not a bastion of sexual purity. It wasn't that Christians were living in this environment where, oh, we should just uh, you know, affirm marriage like God does because that, the culture does it anyway, right? No, they were, they were tempted. And in fact, everyone was saved out of that culture. Everyone who was a Christian in, in Ephesus was a, became a Christian, a follower, out of that way of understanding sex. And Paul says, but sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you. That's like, I mean, he's saying it shouldn't even, it should not even a hint, right? As is proper among saints. The word proper, which... Uh, <sighs> Uh, it's, it's not used by, as much by English uh, Americans, but man, I love how, how much English people, British people use proper. That's a proper sandwich. That's a proper beer. That's a proper, you know, whatever. Um, I, I love that I've, I've had uh, British friends over the years and I just enjoy the way they say that, but it's not the same thing. Okay, so don't, uh, it's proper as in the way we would think of it, proper as in appropriate. It goes along. And Paul is saying it doesn't go. It does not go. Sexual immorality, the way that our, our world, the world thinks about sex, does not go with being in the family of God. It doesn't fit. Uh, the word sexual immorality here, it, it, it sounds like he's sort of connecting words in Ia. Sexual immorality is the, the Greek word pornea, where we get our word porn from, but it's a, it's a junk drawer term for uh, all kinds of sexual immorality. Everything outside of covenant marriage between a man and a woman. And he throws in impurity too, which is a corruption of, a, of sexual nature, um, covetousness, which seems weird. You're like, you know, the first two are sexual and then covetousness, or maybe your translation says greed. Like, that seems weird. Like, what is he, what's that got to do with money? Um, it's it's not, the, not the love of money. It's, it's the covetous, it's the desire behind this. That is uh, an inordinate desire that um, 
is insatiable, in this case, towards sex. Paul says we're not even to talk about it or joke about it. Crude joking about sexual immorality has no place in the family. It goes against God's plan, good plan for sex. Despite what people think, God is pro-sex. Can I say that? God is pro-sex. God is not just pro-sex. God is for really good sex, right? He's for it. He created it. It was created in the Garden of Eden before sin happened. And the last words, uh, the last, uh, right before sin happened and entered, uh, entered the world, uh, the, it says that a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. And so it's this idea of oneness. It is the, the, the picture, and we won't draw a picture, but the intertwining and connectedness of the human bodies that is God's plan and God's picture. It is oneness, by the way, uh, that is affirmed on the lips of Jesus in Mark 10 and Matthew 19. Literally, he quotes Genesis. And on the lips of Paul a few verses later in chapter five, as we begin to talk about marriage, he will quote, quote Genesis 2.24. They're reiterating, reaffirming, helping us or orient our minds around God's purpose for sex. And what Paul is telling us here is don't have oneness of bodies without oneness of life. Anything else, anything else, and everything else hijacks God's purpose, his vision for sex, and I would argue, makes sex into something it should never have been, an idol. This view of marriage, or this view of sex, um, it, it reminds us also that, um, who, well, the question along with this for all of us is, um, who ultimately gets to determine what is sexually moral or immoral, right? Who, who gets to determine that? Not just in general, but for you personally. Who gets to decide what is right, what is wrong in this area? Well, biblically speaking, God does. Not only because God made us in his image as human beings and he's determined that, but biblically, we are redeemed by Christ, including our bodies, and our bodies belong to him. We are created for him and for his purpose. This stands over and against our culture's sexual ethic, where the idea of what I do with my body only matters to me, not God, matters to me. Um, and, sex, and sex is made an idol, and I would argue not just sex, but like sexual fulfillment, right? Sexual fulfillment and the idea that you cannot be a whole human being. You cannot live a flourishing human life without sexual fulfillment. That's a lie. Sex is not God. It's good. <laughs> it's a gift, but it's not God. And I would argue this, that one of the things we see in our culture is apart from God being at the center of life, something that big, that powerful, that amazing, we will look to human experiences that are powerful to substitute for God. So it's no wonder that our culture, devoid of God, devoid of having lives oriented around God, has looked to something as powerful as sex as an answer. Sex is not God, it's a gift. And what we see in our culture I would argue, is not, by and large, sexual flourishing. Russell Moore said, uh, in the 1960, uh, since the 1960s, the sexual revolution's been writing checks that it can't ultimately cash. The greatest sex of your entire life. 
It will satisfy you in the deepest part of your soul. I'm sorry, it can't, period. I would argue not even in marriage. (laughs) It was never meant to be your soul satisfaction. It was never meant to be the thing that you orient your life around. It's not God. Now, I would argue, (laughs) along with the temptation towards our our culture's sexual ethic, which is what I think Paul's saying here, is we, we need to be aware of that. I think we also have to examine how the church has responded to sex. The church has uh, had a couple of major issues. One is uh, what really emerged is the purity culture. Some of you may be aware of this. Not, not just the desire for sexual purity, but this idea of, of um, uh, it, it was so unhealthy in that it, it, it made women into seductresses, right? Women are dangerous, therefore a man should not be alone with a woman. If he's not married to her, he should never be alone with her. And a woman, she, you know, she's got to constantly all the time think about what she's wearing because she can't, she doesn't want to cause anyone to stumble, right? So it, it makes women like that. And then men, it kind of says, well, you know, they're just going to have desires and sort of men, men gets off, right? Like they don't get the same level of responsibility. And then what also happened in the church is this sense of once you had crossed that line, once you'd crossed that line, like you were, you were damaged goods. You're damaged goods, um, and there's just no grace for you. I'm sorry, right? Who's going to want to marry you now? You've crossed that line. And I'm saying this because this has been reinforced in not every church, but it's what is, is called is an un, uh, ugly underbelly of a lot of youth ministry from the time I was at youth until 15, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, even the, the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast identifies some of this and the, the damage that it created. Um, the, on, the, on the flip side, the church has also, not only have we created this purity culture, but we've created a self-righteous culture um, that, where um, we have hurt uh, people who are same-sex attracted um, with a heavy-handed self-righteous behavior. That is, oh, we're not sexually broken, but look, you, you, you have those desires. Those are wrong, right? Instead of understanding every person in this room is sexually broken in some way. No one in this room gets, gets sexual purity by being born in this world, right? We all are broken individuals. That's why we need grace. Doesn't mean we're all broken the same way, but it does mean it ought to create a level of humility about us as we talk about these things. And so there have been people with same-sex attraction who struggled and not felt like the church was a place they could talk about it. They've been hurt, they've been alienated, and they've felt like God does not love them because the church does not love them. Jesus' people are to be marked by the same love that Jesus was marked by, but also the same truth. We come with compassion, we come with humility. Does not mean act, but this does not mean acting like sexual impurity doesn't matter in the church. Did you know Do you know this is one of the things I would argue from Genesis to the book of Revelation is one of the issues that plagues the church over and over again is the the letting in of sexual impurity within the body. Even in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, there's a, or 1 Corinthians 5, there's a man who's living with his his stepmom and the church has not confronted him. Or they've kind of, maybe a few people have, but nobody's like, well, you know what? He's just who he is. He's our buddy. We love him. So let's just let him hang out. He's cool, right? 
And Paul says, no, that's not the church. That's not who we are. This brother is thumbing his nose at God. He's, he's ignoring God's commands. He is doing what he wants to do regardless of what God says. And so we are to take it seriously. I want to be clear. Listen to what Paul says in verse um, five and six. He goes, you may be, this is a weighty matter, so just let it rest on you. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's heavy, isn't it? And it's meant to be. We should not gloss over this. It matters if we are sexually pure. We're seeking sexual purity. And let's be clear. It's not saying it's a temptation. Uh, it's a sin to be tempted. He's not saying it's a sin. Uh, that, that He's not saying those of you that struggle need to be cast out of the church. No, struggle is different. Sexually impure, what he's talking about here are not people who are struggling against their sin or trying to fight, who are trying to follow Jesus. These are people who said, nope, I'm going to love my sin. This is my sin, and I love it more than Jesus. And Paul is saying that has no place in the church. And in fact, those who actually live that way are demonstrating they are not part of God's family. This is why he says in verse six, let no one deceive you with empty words. This goes back to what we talked about a few weeks ago. Deceptive ideas that come from the enemy that appeal to disordered desires in our heart and are normalized in a sinful society, the world, the flesh, and the devil. In verse six and seven, Paul says it's these sons of disobedience and he says, do not become partners with them. Listen, there's a very real, one of the easiest things we could do as a church to make nice with our entire community is to just capitulate to the culture's view of sex. It would be incredibly easy. But we're not called to be faithful to the culture. We're called to be faithful to Jesus. And just like the church in Ephesus was called to be faithful to Jesus, despite their culture, we are called to be faithful too. I realize this is particularly difficult for those of you with friends or family members who are embracing sex outside of marriage. You can feel like you're being forced between loving them or loving Jesus. And so what happens is people just change their view on what Jesus said. Jesus didn't really say that. The Bible didn't say that. So then I can love my friend. The problem is we're, we're, uh, at that point we're compromising what Jesus said. Listen, it's, it's, no, it's, no, it's no mistake that in Matthew 10, when Jesus, uh, the context of Jesus saying, um, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me if you're going to be my disciple, he also includes this statement. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And I realize that's weighty. But I would argue you're going to do more good for your brother or sister, your friend who is living outside of God's, God's plan, you're going to do more good for them by loving Jesus and praying for them than by simply telling them everything's cool. That's hard. I know it is. Je- that's why Jesus said this. 
Listen, he was abandoned on the cross. So that's the one thing you can know is you're not alone because he was abandoned on the cross so you don't have to be abandoned. He's with you in that. And I believe this, he hears your prayers for your friend, your family member. So how do Christians walk in sexual purity in the church then? At the end of verse four gives us something really, a weapon here. This really weird, look at what he says. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. (laughs) Like what in the world? (laughs) He's like saying, don't don't tell dirty jokes, be thankful. (laughs) How do these two connect with each other? Because you can only be tempted to give into something sexually if you believe God is not good. But if you're resting in God and his goodness, then it's hard to deceive you that this is better. Remember Adam and Eve, and Eve was was deceived, and, and it was Satan who came to her, not with a sword to attack her, but with an idea to entice her. Did God really say that? And so one of the ways we fight against that is by having gratitude in our hearts. God, thank you that you've loved me. Thank you that you've redeemed me. Thank you that Christ has died for me. That, I, that though this life is hard and maybe I'm not married and I want to be married someday, but I'm not sure I'll ever find someone. And, and you're feeling that loneliness. Know that you're not alone. Steer your heart towards Christ, towards the cross. This is why you need brothers and sisters in Christ to remind you of what to be thankful for. And that helps fight against temptation. So it matters. Thanksgiving is a weapon against sexual temptation and sin, and it matters how we walk in sexual purity. Secondly here, a little less time, promise. (laughs) But it matters if we walk in humility and light. So Paul continues in verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, and now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. You were in darkness. If you've been with us through Ephesians, you remember Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, where Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, living in the, the deceitfulness of your own desires, following the pattern of this world. We all were in darkness. Listen, there's one thing that that ought to produce in us above everything. Humility. Humility. We were in darkness and only by God's grace did we ever make it into the light. Uh, Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not by works. Listen, We didn't contribute anything. We didn't get ourselves out of the darkness. God did it. Christians should never look down on others because we didn't contribute anything. We didn't bring anything. We didn't add anything to our salvation as a gift of God. You find me a prideful Christian and I'll show you somebody that's forgotten their salvation. You are light, walk as children of light, he says. So we were once in darkness, but now we are children of light. We walk in line with our father, the creator of light and the light of the world, right? That's who we live with and now. We're to imitate our father. We reflect him in this world, his values, his attitudes, his actions, his words. 
And so he says, take no part then in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. As I was reflecting on this passage this week and preparing this message, um, I thought about I thought about this. What what are the deeds of what is our, our what are deeds of darkness in our culture um, that are that are not spoken of? They're done secretly, but are dark. And the one that came to my mind overwhelmingly is abortion in our culture. Today happens to be the National Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. So it's appropriate to speak about it. But before I speak about it, I, want, I do want to say a couple of things. One is that there is grace for those who have had an abortion. Um, if you're feeling the weight of an abortion you've had, or maybe you were a guy who pushed a girlfriend to have an abortion, there is grace. There is mercy. God sees you. You have not out the cross of Christ. You have not outrun the love of God. And so I want to say that off the bat. Even as I begin to talk about it, I want you to hear that because that's the gospel. Secondly, the church can't just be about unborn people. We got to love all people. We got to love the mothers. We got to love the the women who've gone through abortion, who are walking in shame and and wondering if there is any peace. We've got to love the the fathers that may be pressuring their, their girlfriends to have an abortion. We got to love the abortionists. Christians are called to love. It's a radical love. It's a hard love, but it's a love that Christ has loved us with. But I want to say abortion is something that happens in the darkness. It's behind closed doors. It's in dark rooms. It's it's not, it's talked about in, um, in clinical terms, sometimes publicly, but no one will show you a representation, an actual representation. You will not see even an artist's rendering of what happens in an abortion on the national news or in the media. Why? Because if it was brought to light, I believe this, I have seen it. If it was brought to light and you and I had to see this, there would be a moral outrage like this country has never seen in history. Because no one looks at that and goes, no biggie. That's cool. But it's done. Now something a little bit lighter. My, my first grandchild's coming next summer. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, I'll be honest, I've told people, I, I thought about my kids being in the church. I did not think about my grandchildren growing up at, in uh, Koa Kids, but I, I love it. It excites me that, that um, Hannah and Gigi are expecting. Um, I, you know, I remember when, uh, when I saw uh, Hannah's uh, ultrasound. This was you know, 24 years ago. Uh, a little blurry. <laughs> I saw this head and this little body, and I thought, I, it, it changed me. And then I just got to see the 3D ultrasound. I was not ready for that. The 3D ultrasound of my grandchild. And I got to see his or her little hands and face and, and ears and saw her, his spine or her spine and then saw the little nose. And something, I felt something that I felt when I first saw the ultrasound for my kids. 
I will protect that. I will defend that. I will give my life for that. That is precious to me. And I think that that's how God feels about every unborn child that is made in his image. And I would argue we need to have some moral fortitude on this. We do not want to explain to our children or our grandchildren that we just chose to keep silent because we're headed towards a pro-life nation. That's what's happening. I'm not, I'm not advocating all the, the methodologies or ways that that's spoken about, but I am saying that the science is supporting this. And the church needs to have a voice. It needs to have a voice for the unborn, and it needs to have a voice of compassion for those mothers. Because I don't think it's a light decision that they end up at the doors of an abortion clinic. I think very few of them actually take it flippantly. And the ones that I have talked to on the back end, it's a, it's a lifelong journey of dealing with, with guilt and shame. And we need to have compassion and mercy and grace. This is one of the reasons why we support the Boston Center for Pregnancy Choices, why we give resources, tens of thousands of dollars. Since day one of COA, we've given and supported them. We've, we've helped produce videos for them. We, we help do their wa- annual walk of life. This is an organization that, that seeks to not simply be pro-life, like, hey, we're for the unborn, but actually do things about it, put money and resources about it, care for those mothers, walk with them. We've actually thrown showers, baby showers, for mothers who had no family to support them and no community to support them. We threw showers for them. We did not know these women. But God gave us an opportunity in a couple of hours on a Saturday to throw a shower for a woman who had decided to keep her child and just simply say, God loves you. It's important. On the back end, it's also why we need to support, continue to support foster care and adoption. Why we, need to, why we as a church need to be on both sides of that. The children that have been born need to be loved as much as the children who haven't been. We are called to be a city on a hill. And that means we're called to be light in a dark world. If you look at the Roman Empire and you look at how Christians acted in the Roman Empire and what is attested to, not by Christians, but by non-Christians, historians, say Christians were weird. Churches were weird because they were generous generous with their resources, their time, their energy, hospitality to those that were not even in the family, but generous with each other. They held to a weird sexual ethic. They believed sex was to be enjoyed only in the bonds of marriage. They were committed to adoption of unwanted children. Children would we'd literally go out into the garbage piles of Rome and collect the unborn, usually baby girls thrown out there before they died and we would bring them in and care for them, not because we were rich, but because Christ called us to love them. And then we were an ethnically diverse community of equality and unity. Let's be weird. I mean it. Let's be weird in this culture, but we can't do it by acting like this culture. There are some things we are called to do 
in, in, in loving Christ and in following Christ. It matters if we walk in sexual purity if, and if we walk in humility and light. I'm going to have the band begin to come and play. Maybe you're not a Christian. I know this is a heavy sermon. You're like, wow, this is my first Sunday at church. It was a hard week to come. Maybe I should have come another week. Um, I get that. That's part about preaching through books of the Bible. I didn't set the agenda for this week. God did. And God actually knew this text was going to land today and knew that you were going to be here today. So I think the last verse of our text is for you today. Paul says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Christ might be calling you to salvation today to experience new life in him. Maybe you can't figure, I don't know how this works. I don't know about how that works. I don't know if I can accept that. It's not about all those things. It's about Jesus. You got to get him right first. Listen, we're all on a journey of sanctification. We're all on a journey of following Jesus more fully. So let's help, help each other in that journey. God cares about what we do with our bodies, what we do with our minds and our hearts, and if we walk in light. And so I want to challenge us to repent as a church. There's not a person in here that, that can say, yeah, I got through today. Nothing applied to me, right? There's message here for each of us. There are things for us to consider. And if you're a Christian, to repent of, to turn away from, to confess to the Lord during this time. And so we, the, the invitation is for that, right? God isn't like, man, I really hope she feels bad or he feels bad and then goes home from church. Like, no. God never brings conviction for condemnation. He brings conviction for, for, to bring you into deeper community. And, and we're going to take communion, which is the sign of, of your forgiveness. And so maybe over this next song, you need to take a few moments to reflect and to pray, to confess your heart to God, to ask him to forgive you, to cleanse you. And then take communion knowing Christ has already done that once and for all. Let's go ahead and stand. I'm going to pray. And then we can sing and respond together. Jesus, I know this was a, a message that you wanted preached today. Um, Paul's words are weighty to all of us and we want to take it seriously. So I pray you would send your spirit even now to help us, to strengthen us. Some of us need just reassurance today that we are forgiven in Christ, that we have peace with you because of the cross, that there is no shame, no condemnation in Christ. Others of us, Lord, need to confess to you. So I pray you'd give us the grace to do that even now. In your name we pray. Amen.